Yo, what is up? Welcome back. Or if this is your first episode, welcome for the first time. I am Omid Farang. I am the creator and host of this scrappy little podcast. And today we got a good one for you. Anselmo Ramos is co-founder and chief creative officer of Gut, the independent agency he created with his partner Gaston Biggio in 2018 with offices in Miami, Sao Paulo, and Buenos Aires. Anselmo came to prominence as chief creative officer of Ogilvy and Mather, Sao Paulo, where in 2013, he partnered with his then Dove client, Fernando Machado, to create Dove Real Beauty Sketches. That film got over 200 million total views online, helping Ogilvy Sao Paulo become 2013 Agency of the Year at Cannes. Shortly thereafter, Anselmo co-founded David, the Miami-based offshoot of Ogilvy, where he would again join forces with Machado to make some of the most famous work of the past decade for Burger King and thrust David Miami to global prominence. Some of his greatest hits include Proud Whopper, Scariest BK, Burning Stores, Google Home of the Whopper, and Whopper Neutrality. In 2017, David Miami became AdAge's Agency Innovator of the Year and AdWeek's Breakthrough Agency of the Year. Recently, David and Burger King won the coveted Penta Pencil at The One Show, awarded for a five-year successful partnership and winning streak. Today, Anselmo has built up a really impressive client roster at Gut in just a few short years that includes Tim Hortons, Domino's, Philadelphia Cream Cheese, Popeye's, Stella Artois, and Nestle. People, he's won over 195 Can Lions, including seven Grand Prix. That is sick. He's been named to AdAge's Creativity 50, Business Insider's 24 Most Creative People in Advertising, and AdWeek's 100 Most Creative People. This is the great Anselmo Ramos and I talking to ourselves. Where are you from? What do your parents do? I am um, originally from Brazil. I was born and raised in Sao Paulo. Um, you know, nowadays I'm also American by choice. So I'm Brazilian and American. My parents, um, my, my mom is an English teacher and a piano teacher. And my, my dad, um, he passed away a couple of years ago. He used to be a mechanical engineer, but he would do oil painting, paintings uh, during the weekends. So he was really creative. Um, my mom, she's a hardcore Christian. And my dad um, used to believe in, you know, ETs and reincarnation and, you know, the law of attraction. So he was like very esoteric. So basically, I grew up between Jesus and aliens. Yeah, it's weird. It must have meant a lot that your dad got to see you succeed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, he was happy about it. I mean, he was a huge influence because he was, like, super creative. He will be drawing every day and writing. So, you know, I, I remember, like, when I discovered his Mad Magazine collection, like, under his bed. And it was a very exciting day because I was like, oh, my God, this is so funny. You know, it was like... American Mad Magazine, and um, and I was like drawing comics, and I would send to them, you know, like some ideas. I'm still waiting for their answer. <laughs> you know what? You might be the guy to bring back Mad Magazine. Oh my god, it was so sad. I think it was last year, right? That yeah. it, it's not. Yeah, it's not around anymore. It's very sad. I mean, Alfred E. Newman was like, you know, everything for me. What did 12 year old Anselmo want to be when he grew up? I, I wanted to be like a soccer player, you know? I was um, going to assume you're Brazilian. I didn't want to go with the cliche there, but I mean. It's very cliche, but, but it's true. I wanted to be a soccer player, but, um, you know, um, I played quite well for a while. But then, you know, when, when it was time for me to decide, I basically um, I made a list of every profession. You know, I was just crossing out one by one. Like, you know, lawyer, boring, you know, like doctor, I hate blood. And then the last one was basically advertising. And I was like, you know, I can, I like to draw. I like to, to write. So I think I can do it. Was there a agency in Brazil that you had access to? Cause you know, a lot of us, if we don't know somebody who's in the business, you sort of, in some ways you're, even though we're all surrounded by advertising, you may not totally be conscious that it's actually a profession. Was there someone who influenced you or just helped you understand that there's actually a path to this profession? Yeah, the Brazilian market is very uh, unique in that way. Like the, um, the famous ad guys are known even beyond um, the advertising market. 
right? So at that time, Washington Oliveto and Nizanguanais and, you know, like my mom, you know, she would know, she would know who they are. And it's super weird. Um, so you kind of know these guys, you know? And so it's, it's, it's a huge part of pop culture in Brazil, advertising in general. And you worked for many years in Sao Paulo. I wonder, like, just throughout your career, what is the biggest misconception about South American advertising? I actually worked like just a couple of years in Brazil because I left when I was 24. So I, you know, I worked for like three years and I was like a junior writer. So, and then I left, I left to, you know, to Lisbon and then Madrid and then the US. Um, so I was just there for a couple of years, but I think, um, you know, in, in Brazil, people love advertising and they work a lot and they're just so passionate, you know, there's this huge culture of, you know, trying to do the best you can all the time. And there is a very um, strong competition between the agencies to see who's the best. It's just very, very strong. Um, also, sometimes you don't have a lot of money, so you have to be resourceful, right? And really creative about how to make ideas happen and, and just find a way. So, you know, I think, I think Brazilians in general are just very creative because they have to be, they have no option. You know, they need to be resourceful at the core because it's always a struggle. Your first week in advertising, how might a colleague describe a young Anselmo Ramos? Well, my first week was actually, I was actually in the studio. You know, I wasn't a writer. Um, so I started the studio just drawing things. And, and I was, and then I, I was like working at the studio for like a year. And then one day I said, you know, this sucks. You know, I don't want to be a studio guy. I want to be a writer. So I, I just quit and I said, I want to be a writer and I left and I started to look for, um, for a job as a, as a junior copywriter. But the first week was like, the first year was bad. I mean, I, 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 you know, didn't come up with anything. I was just drawing shit in the studio, you know? Right. And I want to make sure my timeline is right. You were CCO of Ogilvy Sao Paulo. So you returned to Sao Paulo. Yes. Yes. I spent 12 years abroad. I was, you know, for one year in Lisbon, then three years in Madrid. Then um, I came to the U.S. I was here for eight years. And then after 12 years abroad, I went back to, to Brazil, you know, to my homeland. Yeah. And, uh, and I was there for seven years. So, yeah, I, I went back after 12 years of working abroad. And you go back and you become CCO at Ogilvy Sao Paulo. And, you know, one of the best things you can do as a creative leader with the big job is deliver that signature piece of work. And for you, it was obviously... Dove Real Beauty sketches. Um, at the time, Dove Real Beauty was a campaign that had already existed and was a very celebrated campaign globally. So in the context of the Real Beauty campaign that existed, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the challenge and the pressure of not just creating a famous campaign, which you did, but even more difficult. And it's something we don't talk about a lot uh, in our industry, but I think it's maybe the greatest challenge of all, which is creating a famous follow-up to an already famous campaign. Yeah, Real Beauty Sketches happened five years later. So I, I joined OV Brazil in 2007. Right. And at that time, OV Brazil was um, very profitable, but it wasn't really creative. Um, and so it took us five years to do that. And and sometimes, you know, you just need to be patient. And it's like at the beginning it was hard, right? Because it's a, it's a huge agency and you have to know, to get to know all the clients and to build your team. So it takes, it takes a while. Like, you know, from 2007 until 2010, we didn't, you know, we didn't win anything. It was just like building the foundations of a, of a creative shop. Um, so Real Beauty Sketches was very special because you're right, you know, the brand position was amazing. You know, it was one of the best in the industry, Real Beauty. So that, uh, that was a great starting point. And, um, and that was our um, first global project for Dev, right? And, um, and at that point, OV Brazil was working on a lot of uh, global assignments for Coca-Cola, especially for Coca-Cola and Unilever. So, um, and that's, that was um, my first time working with Fernando, you know, and, um, and he, when he briefed us, the, the ambition was like super high. It was basically, 
okay, Dove did great work in the past, you know, with evolution. It got a Grand Prix in Cannes. But lately, you know, it's not, it's not doing great work. So can we get back to that level of work, you know? And, and I, um, I remember, like, Fernando invited me to go to London and talk to the team, and I was basically telling them what I thought about the brand. And, and I, was, I was very critical. I said, listen, I don't think the brand is doing great. You know, it's a great brand. It's a great positioning. So Fernando said, great. So you came here. You provoked me. Now you need to deliver, right? And here's the brief. And the brief was very simple. It was just one line. Um, let's make women feel more beautiful. And um, so I remember that I went back to the agency and I said, guys, um, we have a problem. I just promised like a global client a Grand Prix in Cannes, right? So now we have to deliver. So it was very hard. It was like two months of working, everyone, like the entire agency work on it. And and then in, the, in our very first meeting, we one of the ideas was real beauty sketches. So, you know, I think we got lucky. You, because you never know, right? Well, sometimes these campaigns are so successful that they become an albatross. I mean, I've experienced it working on Coke where, you know, someone will bring up share a Coke in the context of a new idea or working on Amex where someone will bring up Small Business Saturday. Then all of a sudden it feels like you're chasing a ghost. Um, and, and almost sometimes with clients, you can sense a hopelessness in their eyes. Like, man, we've reached the highest heights and how do we get back to that without being you know, derivative or sort of coming back to the well. You and Fernando seem to, you know, you did it on Dove and you later, and we'll talk about it, you later did it on Burger King, which is you didn't think about it like, oh, you know, we must divorce ourselves from the success of the past to, to sort of, you know, build a future with this brand. You guys were more willing than I've maybe ever seen to, you know, to, to figure out how to adapt success from the past and make it your own. Um, was that a conscious decision or, or like, you know, what kind of conversations did you guys have around that? Well, you know, right after the sketches, you know, it was hard because every client would come to us and say, give me a sketches like, like that. Right? right. Please give me a real beauty sketches. And, you know, and it doesn't work like that. You know, sketches was a perfect storm. It was the right brief with the right brand positioning, the right client, the right agents. It's like the right everything you know, and, and it's very rare. And, you know, and I tell my clients, listen, I cannot promise you anything. We don't know. Right. I mean, um, we'll try, but I cannot promise you, I'm going to give, get you a sketches, you know, like in, in, in a month, it doesn't work like that. And, and I think, you know, our very first meeting between agents and client with Fernando, I think, you know, it was when, when we presented sketches and Fernando asked, Hey, but do you, you know, do you know if this is going to work? And we said, we have no idea. And, and basically the only way to find out is by actually doing it. That was a defining moment in the, in the relationship because it was about embracing uncertainty. You know, we don't know. You have to actually do it and see what happens. And also after that, we just said, you know what? We don't want to be known as this catches guys, you know, so we need to do other things, you know, with other brands, you know, and, um, but, but that was always like, um, something that was important to us. Like, you know, if we see an idea and it makes us feel uncomfortable and we don't know how to do it, how to bring that to life, it's a, it's usually a good sign and, and, and we'll try it, you know, and sometimes we get it right. And sometimes we, we, it doesn't work. Sometimes we get it wrong, you know, um, a lot of times it doesn't work, you know, and it's fine because you learn from it to get better. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into the inception of, of David, but first, since you brought up the partnership with Fernando and, you know, it's pretty incredible. And I've had him on the pod to see the ways that both of your careers have intertwined and um, the relationship that you guys have established and the work that has been yielded from that relationship. You know, you're at Ogilvy and he's a dub. And then, um, things really take off when you create David and he goes to Burger King. I just wonder, you know, what is it about that relationship has led to so much memorable work? I think, you know, we, we both want the same things, you know? And so we, I don't need to convince him, uh, you know, about doing good work or the importance of creativity. We all get that. So we're just trying to get to the best execution possible. So, you know, we, 
we don't waste time rediscussing the brand at every brief, you know? And so it's like, okay, what's the brand? What's the brand positioning? What's the brand personality? Once we agree on that, then it's just about having fun. And, and I think we're all, we're always pushing each other all the time. You know, I think the best relationships are like that. You know, you are just trying to make a difference. We're trying to create something that will generate an impact. It will be part of pop culture. And so we're always trying that right at the core regardless of the brand. Um, and I think, you know, then it's just a matter of discussing, discussing what's the next execution. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, and I think the best relationships are like that. You know, we, we're not like, we're not on a typical client agency relationship. It's just like one team working for the brand, right? One team working for Dove or for Burger King or for Popeyes now. Um, and, and it's just easier in that sense because, you just concentrate on ideas and you work with someone long enough and you grow up together and a business relationship starts to blur into a personal relationship. How do you guys sort of maintain a healthy relationship where, you know, there's a personal relationship, there's presumably a friendship when that's appropriate. And then when it's time to be business partners, you're able to, is it difficult to separate those two things? No, it's all the same. You know, it's kind of messy. You know, we, we like each other, we fight, you know, it's like a couple basically, because, you know, we're always fighting, but deep down we want the same, the same thing, you know? So um, we're always pushing each other, you know, but, but you choose to stay together, like, you know, in the, in, in health and sickness, right? It's like, um, and I, I actually think that we need more of that in our industry. You know, I think nowadays, um, a lot of clients are almost like too open to like one night stands, you know, and it's just like a project here, a project there. And I think, you know, if you think about the best work done in our industry, there is usually a very, you know, strong long-term relationship behind, um, you know, like Nike and, and Wyden or Apple and TBWA and, you know, relationships like that. And I think we need more of that, like an industry. Tell me about the inception of David and tell me what were you feeling like you needed in your career at that time that led you to open this sort of company within a company? Well, it got to a point that um, we just felt that it was time. It was the right time in our careers to have something a little more personal. And, um, and I think at that time it, it made sense for us to start um, an agency using David Ogilvy's first name. You know, Ogilvy um, was using the last name, which is more, you know, the, the, tradi the tradition and the classic agency, the heritage. And, and David would be more personal, you know, the first name is when you tell someone, call me by the first name. And so it was a, it was a great concept, a concept at the core. And it was great, you know, at that time they, they supported us and, and we started the agency and it was a great experience because basically we, we learned how to open an agency with, you know, with a holding company's money. And, and it was amazing. We learned so much and, and it was an incredible experience, but it got to a point that, you know, you, you, you basically say, you know what, I can do this shit. You know, I, I don't need them anymore. And, and you want to have like a hundred percent, um, 100% independent agency, right? And which is basically the same, but now we're all money, you know? But but it was it was an incredible experience. We, we learned a lot and we're very thankful. Yeah, as a former Crispin guy who worked on Burger King, um, I enjoyed watching your progression at David and the progression of the work. And I think a lot of my former colleagues and I kind of watched with curiosity as the first thing came out. It almost felt like, you know, it felt like there was this pause in the brand and then, I think there was a, a curiosity and appreciation about the fact that some of the things that we had created were being re-embraced um, early on. And then as you guys made it your own, it starts to go, it starts to become its own thing and go into a different place. And uh, just how deliberate was that choice to kind of re-embrace some of those principles from the early and mid 2000s when the work was with Crispin and they were doing so much signature work and then you know, they leave Crispin, they sort of lose their way. And when you and Fernando get the brand back, what were some of those early conversations about where you wanted to take it? 
admit we felt the pressure, man. When we got the Birkin account in the US, I mean, I I could feel the pressure of like, oh my God, we're gonna work with Birkin in the US. And then, you know, we would think about the past and everything that, you know, Crispy did, um, all that great work. And Whopper Freakout is one of them, right? So congrats on that one. We love that one. So we we were always striving to to get to the same level, you know, and it's really hard. But Breaking's a great brand and uh, we had a great client, so we had no excuses. So we just went for it, you know, we just tried the best we could. Um, but it, but yeah, the pressure was very, um, you know, we, we, could f- we could feel that every day, like, because we knew that everyone's kind of watching, right? Like, man, this is Burger King. And, you know, and so, you know, we also, I think we kind of use the, the crisping playbook in terms of, you know, looking for a headline, right? Like a PR headline. I mean, I, I learned that with crisping and I think a lot of us did. And, and until today, you know, that's what we do. We're trying to find a PR headline. You know, we want people to talk about the idea. Otherwise, what's the point? So I think a lot of people use that playbook and I mean, it's not, it's not easy, but we're always trying, you know, we always try to, we always try to imagine, you know, okay, would the New York Times talk about this, you know, and, and why, you know, and, but we learned, you know, we learned all that uh, with crisping. So we just tried to, you know, the bar was really high. We just tried, you know, we just tried to keep it up there. It's funny that comes up a lot. You know, a lot of former CDs went on to become ECDs and CCOs at other agencies, and they took with them this technique that was sort of originated at Crispin in the mid 2000s, which was, you know, write your idea as the headline and the article that you expect to read in the New York Times or the USA Today or Fast Company. And um, early on, I could remember colleagues going, well, you need to stop sharing this with everybody. You know, you don't want this technique to get out. But it's one of those things. It's like most things. It's just so much easier said than done and it's it's like uh the example i give is like a baseball pitcher you know since the beginning of baseball they throw a 99 mile an hour fastball and a breaking ball so it's like well all you need to do is throw a 99 mile an hour fastball and a breaking <laughs> ball you know it's, it's easy to say but only only so many people actually know how to implement it and with you guys i mean it was like the campaign would launch and the next morning it would be on the today show and this relationship between sort of creativity and infiltrating pop culture and infiltrating earned media um, was was incredible to watch. I, I couldn't agree more, Omid. I think, you know, it's, I, I I have no secrets, man. I will tell everything I know to anyone. I don't care because it's so hard, you know? Sometimes like I tweet something and and I get some shit like from the team saying, you, got, you know, you're giving away all our secrets. I mean, I don't, what secrets? It's so hard, you know? Um, because, you know, we can say whatever we want, but then you, you need to find the idea, you need to sell it, you need to make it happen. It's so hard. So, yeah, I don't care. We're going to, we're going to come back to that because that is a subject actually that fascinates me. But first I did want to mention to you, you know, on this pod, Fernando had said something fascinating about the need early on to sequence risky ideas in the right order in order to build sort of an incremental trust with his own colleagues uh, within the walls of his organization. So like, you know, before there could be a Whopper neutrality, there had to be a proud Whopper and you sort of build up in risk. Um, and now he's, you know, build up enough trust that he can do moldy Whopper and break basically every rule of food advertising. And I'm guessing his colleagues give him a thumbs up. Um, but you're an ambitious guy. Did you find this need to sequence risk at all difficult or frustrating, or was it just part of being a good partner? Yeah, we, we try to sequence, but, um, but you know, you, you never really know when something's going to work or not. And so, so we try to, yes, build momentum and get everyone behind creativity. And sometimes it takes a while, right, to get an entire organization believing in creativity. And, you know, it's very contagious. If you do something great and there is like, you know, uh, an amazing result for the team, then they want to do more of it because it's also good for everyone's career. You know, it's, it's great for, for, you know, for the clients as well. They get promotions, they get bonuses. So it's good for everyone. So, but I think, um, I think it's contagious, you know, 
the more you do, the more you learn, the more you want to do. And, and that applies for both agency and clients. But in a lot of, you know, it, we never really know, Omid, if something's going to work. And that's the beauty of what we do. You know, nobody knows anything, man. And I always say that. William Goldman said that about Hollywood. He was a screenwriter. He said, nobody knows anything. And he was talking about Hollywood. And that's why you have like tons of sequels in Hollywood. Um, and, and, but that applies to advertising as well. You know, I think in our industry, you know, there are a lot of gurus and pundits and, but you know, especially now after 2020, it's like, nobody knows anything. You just need to do and learn, test and learn, test and learn. We believe in doing, you know, I think, I think most brands don't do enough, you know, that they, they, over, they tend to overthink, but the more you do, the more you learn that you get better at the game. Have you ever found yourself in a room with a CEO saying to him or her what you're saying to me now and just because of where their brand is at or who they are stylistically, when you're saying nobody knows, you can just see on their face like, this is not going to work philosophically. Because I think like, <laughs> you know, with, with Fernando, like, you found a guy who's really like-minded and who's a student of advertising like you and who understands the relationship between commerce and business success and creative success. And I think through that relationship, you found other, I'm guessing you found other relationships like that, but just in the process of building a business, do you ever find yourself just really being in that room where it's a bad fit, where the guy's going, I don't want my advertising guy to say he doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes stuff, but I think, you know, the more you understand the client business, the more you can propose like crazy things because everything's about business. Right. So if I know that, let's say, if I know that delivery drives sales, and if I have a creative idea about delivery, I'm helping you to drive sales. So, you know, it's a very simple example, but like the more you know about the business, the more you can argue about things. So, you know, we just try to understand as much as we can about our clients' businesses so we can help them, you know? So your business problem is my creative opportunity, you know, and it's all related. I think sometimes clients separate creativity and business and we are in the creative business. You know, creativity drives results. So when, when clients understand that, they will embrace, they will fully embrace creativity because it's just good for business. I'll tell you, when you started Gut in 2018, on the one hand, it just made perfect sense to me as an admirer of your career. And on the other hand, it was sort of difficult for me to imagine you and your partner Gaston leaving David Miami because, you know, to me, you were David Miami. Um, for all that you got out of creating David and you just talked about, you know, the experience that you acquired there, what were you ultimately not getting that compelled you to want to start your own company? Um, I, I, David was amazing, but there it's, you know, there was a limit to the things that I could do and it's normal, right? I, I was a founder and a partner, but I was a minority partner. So, um, you know, WP was the majority partner. So there was a limit. I, I couldn't do everything I wanted. And um, so it got to a point that I think, you know, we, we had learned everything we could from David. And we said, well, the next step's actually just going for everything, you know? Um, and, and the decision was, was a very uh, gutsy decision. It was like, almost like an emotional decision. And, and it was, we had the decision in Cannes, um, at the Martinez. And we just looked at each other and said, should we do this? Yeah, I think we should. Okay. So what's the name of the agency? And then, um, we decided the name like in 10 seconds and, and that was it. Right. So it was very, it was very emotional because we just felt that it was the right time. And, and if, if we don't do this now, I'm not going to do it. Right. So also since college, I, I've always had this dream of having my own agency and David was the closest that I got to that. And, and um, yeah, so. And life's got, not a dress rehearsal and you only get one chance of doing it. That's it, man. So, so, you know, it's now is we're going to do everything all over again. We're ready to win it but we're all money, you know? So 
we took a second mortgage um, on our house and um, our house is helping to finance the agency. And that was like two years ago. I can't believe it. You know, I can't believe it's been two years. And, and I'm like, man, I'm having so much fun. I'm like, I should have done this before. You know, I, I, I waited too long. You know, it's really it, fun to have the vision to come up with the name. Tell me a little bit about what it feels like physiologically to sign the papers on your mortgage to fund the business. It felt great, man. It was an amazing feeling. Um, you know, I had, um, I had to call my family, right? My, my wife and my two daughters and, and had like, you know, a family conversation like, Hey, that is leaving David and that is going to start an agency. And so it's going to be tough for a while. You know, um, I'm not going to have a salary and um, we're not going to be able to travel to any, you know, to, to Paris or whatever. I mean, we will need to travel less and um, going to have a budget. And so, so I think, I think it was a great lesson actually for the family. Like, you know, you cannot accomplish anything in life without sacrifice. So, and, but it was, it was amazing, man. It was like, I was so happy. I mean, I remember the first, my first day I got Miami, it was, you know, it was just like, um, a laptop, me and a frame with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And that was everything I needed. You know, let's just go. Let's just like no retreat, no surrender. We can do this. And I also, I also believe in, um, in energy, right? I think you attract the things that, that you think about, you know, is life is about energy. So I also, you know, I like Jean-Claude Van Damme. I also like The Secret, which is a very cheesy airport book, but I really believe that shit, right? You, you attract what you think about and, and we just were very positive. Like, that's going to be amazing. We're going to find the right clients, you know, brave clients. They want to do gutsy work. And you need to believe and then work your ass off, you know, to make it happen. But, man, I'm having a lot of fun. You know, I'm learning a lot because now we don't have back office. We don't have HR and finance from the holding company, right? We need to, I mean, I, I can choose my bank basically. So we are learning a lot, man. I mean, we're making a lot of mistakes. We're very good at making mistakes and we, we can just make mistakes faster now because I don't need to call New York or London before, before making a mistake. I just make the mistake, you know? I don't know if this occurred to you or not, Anselmo, but you know, calling your agency gut infers a rejection of data and analytics. Have you perhaps considered <laughs> amending the name to gut and science? <laughs> well, you know, it's very interesting because we love data. We, we really like data, but we, we almost feel that um, nowadays it's just like, you know, too much data, you know, all the time. And, and you don't know what to do. So we say data is nothing without gut. You actually need both. And we actually, we, we actually think that there are, basically two ways of coming up with ideas. One is data driven and gut executed. So you find a very powerful, you know, piece of data and you just, and then you will find a gutsy execution. But then there's the other way, which is more gutsy. It's gut inspired and data validated. So it starts with intuition. It starts in your gut um, because it just feels right. And then you find data to back it up, you know, to support that idea. So it's two ways of, it's like a, it's a dance between gut and data and, um, and those two ways are valid. But we, we trust our guts a lot, especially our collective guts. If you put like 10 smart people in a room and we all look at each other and we like an idea, it's probably a good idea. You know, so we trust that our guts a lot. You know, Fernando told me about how much of a student of the industry you are. Is there any agency out there in particular that you draw inspiration from as you sort of set your ambition for gut for the next three to five years? Yeah, we, we are a bunch of ad nerds. So we, we love this business and, and um, 
and we have a lot of respect for other shops. You know, um, my favorite is kind of obvious answer is, is widen, you know, because for a couple of reasons, because of, you know, consistency, you know, it's amazing the consistency, the long-term relationships, and also just the, the open um, position of being dependent forever and not selling. I think, you know, it's because they basically say that in the, you know, being dependent is um, it's the fastest way to creativity. And it's like, you know, really related, you know, independency and creativity. So I just, I just love that. Um, and I strongly admire that, that position. I'm going to come back to what you mentioned about um, your information sharing on Twitter and in social media. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, I love reading quotes from Howard Gossage or David Ogilvy or Lee Clow or Bill Bernbach. I love sort of the wisdom of the elders. And I'll tell you, man, like when I read your tweets and your social posts, they feel to me like a modern day version of elder wisdom. And sometimes they cut pretty deep and sometimes they force you to take a good hard look in the mirror, whether you want to or not, if you're serious about succeeding in this business. And I'll tell you, honestly, sometimes as I'm reading them, I'm wondering, as you're writing them, are you ever worried that you are deeply inspiring the very people who you're pitching for business against? Because you're really sort of sharing your soul and you're sharing your accumulated knowledge with the world for free in social media. Yeah, uh, thanks, man. I, I'm just trying to share what I, what I think and what I'm learning, you know, I, I feel that maybe I'm just becoming old, but I feel that, you know, I'm, I'm at a point in my career that I, I want to give back, you know, I, I'm starting to think about legacy. So, you know, um, so I, I'm just sharing everything. It's funny. Like I, I'm just reporting what's happening. So if I'm in a meeting and someone says something, it's becoming like a recurring joke. Like, Oh, that's a tweet on Selma, you know, because something just happens in a meeting. Someone says something or, or a client says something and, and we look at each other like, well, that's an amazing tweet, you know? And so I'm just sharing what I'm learning, you know, real time. Um, and you know, it's been fun and, and I don't care. I'm just like one of our values as an agency is transparency. So I'm being as transparent as I can, you know, I'm, I'm just sharing everything. And I'm, also when you write stuff, and when you put it out there, you just learn a lot. I think when you're writing something, you know, that's what they say, right? When the best way to learn something is actually teaching something. So I'm just learning a lot, man. Every time I write something, I'm like, that's great. I'm learning. I mean, that's a great point about transparency. It's, you know, it sends a powerful message to the world when someone like Elon Musk, you know, hands out the recipe for the battery to every major, you know, uh, car maker out there and says like, I invite you to make cars the way that I'm making them. And and it almost makes me think maybe what you're doing is like the new form of what Bill Bernbach or David Ogilvy did with their memoir. And it's almost like real time memoiring. Um, so I'll, I'll urge listeners to follow you on Twitter and, and LinkedIn. But I did want to share one tweet you had recently. You said, quote, excuses agencies love to tell themselves. I can't afford top talent. My clients just don't get it. They don't have any money. They don't approve anything. Uh, if only I could work with Nike, if only I could work in the U.S., what's your excuse for not doing great work, unquote? And I know what that did to me emotionally. I just, I have to think that you must get responses to your posts sometimes that feel like you're having therapy sessions with strangers. Yeah, I mean, some, you know, I would say that most people like what I write, some people don't. It's, you know, it's, that's fine. It's the internet. Um, in that one, Particularly, I, I was just, I was just like um, reminding everyone that there is always an excuse, man. There's always an excuse, and I think agencies, agencies love to find excuses for not doing great work. It's just true, right? So, my client sucks. My client doesn't have any money. If I could work with Nike, if I could work with Fernando, if I could work in the U.S., if I, you know, if if if, but. You know, do whatever, do whatever you can do with the clients that you have in the market that you are, in the language that you're working on. I mean, you know, it's and then just 
get better, learn, you know, or do something. But, you know, complaining, complaining doesn't solve anything, you know. So uh, we are very lucky that we have great brands and great clients. So we have zero excuses, you know. I mean, if, if we don't do great work, it's 100% our fault, you know. But, but I think, you know, when, when you look in the mirror and you blame yourself, it's always better, you know, than just blame your client or blaming the market or the language, you know. I mentioned pitching earlier. You've also been outspoken about the relative abusiveness of the pitch process as it's often constructed today um, where agencies must succumb to this process where you're, you know, you're one of a dozen agencies and you're essentially asked to give your product away for free uh, to be in consideration, um, you know, which not only devalues ideas, but it's just not really the bedrock upon which a healthy relationship tends to start. And uh, so I just wonder how does gut approach pitches and how do you and Gaston talk about pitches and balance your ambition versus, you know, having appropriate self-worth? Oh, me, this is the perfect day to talk about this. Just half an hour ago, I sent an email declining um, a huge pitch. Um, you know, so let's talk about that. It's an amazing brand, okay? Um, pretzels? <laughs> no, I, I cannot say the brand, but it's, it, you know, it, it's an amazing brand, man. I mean, it's the kind of brand that you go, oh my God, I would love to work with them, right? Um, we don't have any brands in this category, you know, um, I'm sure it's a good amount of money, but you know, the pitch process is just crazy. You know, um, we got on a call and in every question we had and basic, basic questions, we couldn't get an answer, you know? So it's a complete, it's like, you don't know anything. You know, um, it's unpaid, okay? That you don't know how many agencies, you don't know anything, you don't know the people. It, it just, it's completely blind. So we had to say no, you know, why? Because now I can, <laughs> you know, now I can say no. Of course, um, Gize, our CFO, you know, she's probably not happy about it because, you know, we are an indie shop, we could use the money, but, you know, if every agency could say no to this kind of, you know, unfair pitch process, I think our industry would be in a better shape, you know? Um, so then that happened like today. We, you know, we are not good at pitching, okay? And I, I say that openly, we're really not. We, we're better at dating, which is basically, you know, um, we get we get to know a client, usually a client referral. Client referrals are very powerful, and then we, you know, we we can have a cocktail. Some people call me the chief cocktail officer, and um, you know, and sometimes you get a project, and then you get another project, and then eventually you look at each other and say, okay, should we do this? You know, should we get married? Should we try? But you know, that's us, right? I mean, we're just so honest about who we are and we, we, we don't like pitching. We're not really good at it because you're not, you're not building the campaign together. You know, it's a, it's a process that you don't have, you don't have, you know, all the information that you need. You are working alone, not working with your client. So it's not ideal, you know? So we, um, yeah. I mean, sometimes we do it, but usually we don't, you know. And, and so often the end result, even if you win, is you've won. The work is wrong because we have not provided you with all the information and we haven't been working through this process together, but we feel a connection to you. You got enough right so that together we can essentially start all over again. I would love to see data on what percentage of work that appears and what eventually becomes a winning pitch actually gets made. I bet it's quite low. I agree. I agree. The worst part is the clapping at the end where, you know, after a pitch presentation, they clap because they have to, not because they want to. You know what I mean? And yeah. so I, I yeah, I, I don't like it. I think, I think we need to find an, another way um, because I don't think, I don't think it's working. Um, but, you know, we, 
we're very lucky because we're growing basically without pitching. Um, but you know, I'll I'll try to keep growing without pitching. You know, um, and if gets to a point that we need to pitch, I mean, we'll try to find a different way of pitching. You know, a different so process. What does it look like to grow without pitching? Is it essentially a brand sees what you do, likes what you do? You know, a referral from someone who trusts you, who've experienced success with you, and then it just it's just a more sort of organic dating process, as you say. Exactly, exactly. The best the best new business is your work. You know, and and if a client calls us, I'll just tell the client call our current clients and ask them what they think. You know, mm. it's very simple. It should be simple, but you know, it's um yeah I. I I'm just trying to find a different way because it's um, it's very exhausting, you know. I mean, we we uh, we start to work on something that we call reverse RFI or reverse RFP, which is basically when clients send you a, a, you know this huge document with like 50 questions, you send one back. You know, we lost them back. Look, I'm about to give this to you for free. You send them back the IFR. No, no, you send back like you know 20 questions because you also want to know. You know, and, you know, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it backfires, you know, it backfires. But whatever, you know, we're trying. We're trying. I think I think agencies um, are, I don't know, I think as an industry, we're accepting anything, you know. And I think we need to value ourselves a little better and, 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 um, and also think about agency positioning because we – we help our clients with brand positioning, right? Brand personality, brand values. And, but what about your positioning as an agency? What kind of agency you want to be? What kind of clients you want to have? What's your, you know, your, your core values and stuff like that. I think it's very important to have that discussion. You're a company that, you know, despite some early successes in just your first two years is still in its relative infancy. And that's during a pandemic. Uh, what has been some of your learnings just for navigating your company through COVID? Man, we're learning a lot. It's been, it's, um, it's been a, a very interesting experience. And um, I'm, I'm doing this course um, in Harvard about, it's called OPM, Owner, President, and Manager. And I'm doing that because, you know, I'm, overcompensating for not having a holding company now. So I'm just like putting myself in, in a very uncomfortable position of learning finance. This right? is the Harvard Business School Executive Education Program. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. called OPM. So, you know, it's been an amazing experience. And um, I've done two units and I still need to finish one. And because of COVID, it got canceled. So when when the global pandemic happened, you know, Harvard offered uh, online course about crisis management, right? So you get on a call with 200, you know, 2000 CEOs from all over the world and, and, you know, Harvard professors, and they basically tell you, listen, we've been preparing you for this moment. Okay. Um, there's no playbook for this crisis. Um, so good luck. Let us know how. Let us know how how it goes, and and that's that's how bad it was, and, and that's how bad it's been, you know, because no one was prepared for this. Nobody knows anything, so we're all learning real time. So what we did was we just tried to be there for our clients and and help them navigate through this event, you know, um, and. And I think, you know, at the beginning, a lot of clients did the right thing, which was basically, okay, can you actually do something instead of say something? You know, is there any action you can do to help, you know, um, our communities and help with this crisis? Then do it. Um, but if you, if you can't, just don't say anything. Just shut up, you know? So, but I think we're, we, we were all learning real time every day. And we still are right? Because it's still, still not over. But, you know, um, we, we learned that working remotely works perfectly in our industry, right? Because it's all about ideas. 
is not ideal, but it works. You know, and producing remotely also works. You know, uh, with some limitations, but it does. So we we are learning a lot, and and still not over. But um, it's a very it's a very humble experience. Let me ask you about that that Harvard program because you know Harvard brings with it such respect and reverence. Um, but you're a guy who you know you've been in the cage for the last 20 years working with some of the biggest brands in the world. When you're doing your units, is it purely educational and illuminating and you're in this academic environment trying to keep up and absorb as much as you can? Or are there ever times when as someone who is in the cage and is conducting real business every day, are you ever secretly rolling your eyes a little bit? No, man, you learn a lot. It's like I, I strongly recommend because you have, you have lessons on, you know, leadership and, and finance and sales and operations and negotiation. You know, it's all like really valid lessons that you can, you can apply in your business. And also, the, you know, you have people from all over the world, like from different industries, um, you have very few uh, people in communications, actually. So, you know, you, you have people from logistics or pharmaceutical, you know, so, so it's, it's amazing. You know, you work, you, you learn a lot. And the hardest part is just finding the time to implement everything because it's crazy, right? So you come back with a notebook full of, you know, ideas and, and you don't have time to implement everything. You know, but but it's very it's very encouraging because it, you know these business people they look at you and you know and sometimes you know I would say hey but it's different right because you're selling shoes I'm selling ideas so it's very subjective and they're like no it's not can which you su- which which subject has come easiest to you and which subject has presented the most challenges. Well, you know, in, in the marketing class, right? <laughs> I was like, okay, I, I know one thing or two, but in finance, man, that's, you know, I was desperate, honestly. The, fin- the pre-reading, the pre-reading material for finance was like, that was hard. You know, I, I, had, to, I had to cheat, basically. I would call my CFO. <laughs> no, honestly, I, I had to cheat. I, I would call Gizé, my CFO, and just say, Gizé, please help me. I, you know, I don't understand this formula. I need to calculate like a financial ratio here. I don't know, but you know, I, I'm learning a lot. You're also a business owner who is a person of color. What is your expectation for how we as an industry must respond to the black lives matter movement? You know, it's, um, it's really interesting. Like with, with uh, George Floyd and the black lives matter, um, you know, recent events, like I, I tweeted something. I said, you know, the, the best thing we can do right now as an industry is to hire more black talent. And it's interesting. Like you know, I got some backlash in Brazil, and I, I, I got almost no backlash in the U.S. You know, and and it's interesting because that made me realize a couple of things. You know, one. Of course, Gut Miami is more advanced than Gut Sao Paulo because we're two years in versus one year. So, um, like right now in the US, we have 13% of black talent, which is the same percentage of the US population. You know, we still need to get better in terms of leadership positions and a lot of things, right? When we're far from, from um, you know, being ready, we'll never be ready. But I think, you know, we, we have started. In Brazil, we have only 6% of black talent. In a country that has more than 50% of people of color. So we are far away, like like far away. Okay, so, so that's why I got some backlash. But also it made me realize that we are different things in different markets and, and race is about context, right? Like in Brazil, I'm a white um, person majority basically in the u.s i'm latino you know i have an accent i'm a latino business owner 
So I'm part of like 16, like 15%, 16% of the population. So I'm minority. So um, that was like, like, a, you know, um, a huge learning, you know, for me, like I'm almost like two different things in two different markets. Um, so I, I'm learning a lot. I think we all are. Um, but, but we, we believe that diversity drives creativity at the core, right? So basically the more diverse you are, the more creative you're going to be. And so if, if you are in a creative business and we're selling creativity, it should be a no brainer that, you know, you should just go for diversity because it's just like, you know, it's reflecting the, the world like it is, but that's also good for business because diversity drives creativity. Getting back to gut and just sort of your entrepreneurial spirit as an entrepreneur, is there an aspect of management separate of the creative process that you find yourself enjoying more than maybe you would have anticipated when you were only responsible for running a creative department at a big agency? Yes, we are just, we're just enjoying the entire process, like everything, like choosing the bank, like choose the location for the agency, um, choosing the talent and, and, the, and the clients. Basically now we're able to choose everything. So we cannot blame anyone, you know? So it, it's, so you're learning a lot. We are learning a lot because now it's, everything's up to us. Um, and, and we are realizing that you have to love the process because every day you're going to have problems and you need to love those problems, you know, and, and everything's going to take longer than you think. Everything's going to take more money than you think. Um, but basically we wake up every day and we have to solve problems, but those problems are connected to your business, which is like, you know, we're building a creative company here, you know? So if you enjoy solving those problems, you could be fine, you know, but, um, because that's how we learn. That's how we get better. You know? Yeah, you and your partner were sort of the spirit animals of David, and we're all ultimately in the business of talent. I must think it's emotionally taxing to be in competition for talent in a relatively small market in Miami with an agency that you know that you helped build. Yeah, it's complicated, but you know. We, we want talent from anywhere, right? Not just Miami. I think, you know, one of our challenges is actually to attract talent from other parts of the U.S., you know, um, for Miami. Because, you know, Miami is not um, a huge advertising town, right? So, but, you know, we, we think the best way to attract talent to Miami is by doing great work, you know? Um, because some people still look at us like, oh, you know, Anselmo has an accent. Miami is probably U.S. Hispanic, you know? And I go, no, we're not a U.S. Hispanic agency. I mean, we do have Latinos and we, we you know, of course we can create a content in Spanish, but no, we're an agency for the total market. So, um, but, you know, the best way to attract clients and talent is by doing great work. That's that's the best, that's the best new business tool ever. As a manager, do you worry more about being too hard on people or being too soft on people? I'm usually too soft, I think. I mean, I have Gaston, right? Gaston is my partner. So, you know, I I am Bosanova, Gaston is Tango, right? <laughs> so Gaston, Gaston tends to be a little more harsh, but we are not harsh on anyone. We're just harsh on the work. You know, we, we want to, we want great work. So it's all about the work. Um, we, we, we want to create this, you know, nice environment. You know, well, one thing we say is our priorities are people first, then work, then clients. You know, so if you take care of your people, if you inspire them, if you nurture them, if you create an environment where they can thrive, they're going to do great work. If they do great work, the clients will be happy. So we are a client-last agency. 
and we tell them we, we tell that to our clients and they like it. Do you get nervous before client meetings anymore? Not really, no. Maybe I should, but no, no. I you don't give off a nervous vibe. No, I'm I'm never nervous. I mean, my wife actually like after we opened got, I think it was like we were like six months in, and my wife said, "You, you know, you're starting a new independent shop, like self funding. You should be a little nervous right now." Yeah, where's the you puke? Know? Exactly, like <laughs> you were you're way too calm, you know. I don't know, man. I, I it's just like I I don't get nervous. Usually, I don't. You know, for that I have Gaston. Right. All right, Anselmo. We end every episode with the same three questions. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. The first one is, what is the word or phrase of advertising jargon that makes your skin crawl the most? That one is easy. Um, it's circle back, man. <laughs> I. It's just because to me, circle back is just not committing like you know with anything it's like zero commitment i'll circle back it's just i i think um i i read a tweet during the pandemic that was about that it was like you know when you realize because of the you know the zoom calls right when you realize your husband is a circle back kind of guy <laughs> you know <laughs> i just yeah i don't like that I, I prefer like hey i like this idea or i don't like this idea you know, for this or for that, but you know, let's just talk for listeners. It. Just even as you, as you uh, utter the phrase, I can just see hives running up your neck. You just, I mean, you have an allergic <laughs> reaction to the words. Okay, the next one, the next question is, what is the most offensive or fucked up response you ever got from a client during a creative presentation of your work? It's funny. You just said um, that. You just said allergic reaction, like. That's what we heard one time. Um, we, I mean, I heard a lot of crazy feedback, but there was um, this pitch that we presented the campaign, you know, and it was just like silence, right? Like crickets. So clearly it was a, you know, it was a bad meeting. But like two days later, we got the call, like a feedback call. And the client said, we actually had a allergic reaction to your work that that was exactly what they said <laughs> so, so we didn't get it yeah exactly so no chance right no we don't get it yeah but but that's what they said i, I kind of fight i kind of felt you know proud in a way oh my god my work can provoke an allergic reaction you know it's someone you know it was kind of a proud moment it's like the best burger king work you either want people to love it or hate it but not fall in between exactly yeah, yeah. And the final one is called the one that got away. What's the one beloved idea that you, for whatever reason, just couldn't sell that continues to live in your, your heart or haunt you? I believe Fernando actually gave a dove example. I'll be curious to see if you guys have the same answer, but what's, what's your answer? Well, for that one, I, I do have a couple, but I'm not going to tell you on because I'm, tr I'm, I'm still trying to make them happen. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, of course. So, you know, I'm not going to tell you, you know, because I, I never give up, you know, I, so we, we, we have this, like, you know, this notebook full of ideas and we're just trying to sell them. Right. So one day we'll be able to sell them or not, but I'm not going to tell you. That's fair enough, man. You know, I've really been looking forward to picking your brain and, uh, and this lived up to and surpassed the hype that I built up around it, man. So I appreciate the time. I am watching closely and rooting for your success. And uh, I think anyone who made it this far into the episode probably shares my feeling that we're all in many ways trying to be a little bit more like you in the way that we do the job, man. So thank you for all the inspiration. It's probably just my mom by now. But, um, <laughs> your mom but thanks. <laughs> exactly. But thanks, Omid. Thanks so much for having me, man. Um, right. I really like uh, Whopper Freak Out. So, you know, it's, uh, that was a huge inspiration for everything. Thank you thanks, so much, man. man. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. See ya. Awesome, man. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Thank you to Anselmo. Man, that's a guy whose brain I've been wanting to pick for quite some time now and uh, very appreciative that he not only did the pod, but that he was so forthcoming and uh, just an awesome guy to finally connect with. Thank you, as always, to the executive producer of this podcast, my man, Jeff Fiorello. 
at JSM Music. Thank you to people who make it to the outro. Man, you are the real heads if you've made it to this outro. I am appreciative uh, that you listen to this podcast and that you continue to share it with your colleagues and your friends and the most generous among you who review it and rate it. And since you're the real heads, I will just share with you that uh, we've got some very exciting guests lined up uh, to get you through this summer. I don't want to jinx it, but I do want to at least tease the fact that uh, I'm really looking forward to where the show is headed in the next few months and some of the guests who've, uh, who've committed to join us here. So watch this space, continue to support the show. And until we talk again, peace. Peace.